welcome to the Niche Enrollment Insights Podcast. In this podcast, our goal is to focus less on the promise of best practices, and instead look for the processes and the questions that spark internal reflection and lead to novel solutions tailored to your institution. I'm Will Patch, Senior Enrollment Insights Leader for Higher Ed at Niche, and my guest today is Errol Wimp. Errol's the founder of Mara Bridge Consulting and works alongside multiple industries to take a deeper view at education. Previously, he served as the Director for Undergraduate Admissions and then Principal Consultant for Enrollment Planning at IUPUI, and before that was at the University of Louisville. His process is informed by design thinking and data insights, not just surface-level results. He takes a high-level view of problem-solving, and I always come away energized after a chat, so I hope you love listening in today as we take this deep dive looking at whether or not offices are really as data-driven as they might think. Welcome. Thanks for making time to chat today, Errol. Will, so excited to be here. I've got a big smile on my face. I'm humbled. I'm energized to, you know, to have a conversation with you. And, and as you know, you're one of my favorite data and insights providers <laughs> in the industry. Uh, I said that to you I at NACAC last year. So it's uh, a real honor to be here today. Yeah, I, I really appreciate that. Well, I'm going to jump in. Two starter questions, things that I love to talk about. First off here, what's something you tried that didn't work and what did you learn? So let's let's just start with uh, answering that in terms of uh, who I am and, and mm-hmm. how the, the Marbridge Consulting Solutions LLC uh, business has developed over the past year based off of, you know, doing something that did work, but at the same time didn't work. So as you mentioned, founder and chief inspiration officer for Marbridge Consulting Solutions, and we are an, an, a human innovation design firm that supports the planning and the organizational leadership development aspirations of our client base. The key part is that that centering of the human experience. And so what we do is we look to really diversify the data analysis process by bringing in qualitative data to complement you know, the, the ever important quantitative side of the house. So how do we get insights not only from our, our prospective students, which we depend on niche to, you know, to provide you know the, that big data and, and also those qualitative insights, which is why I mm-hmm. appreciate you all so much. But also, you know, what are they say, what are they telling us about our your respective institution? What's your workforce saying as well? You know, and so recognizing the power and the value of those who are having a primary source, firsthand observation of mm-hmm. different aspects of the student engagement point, whether it's front stage or back, backstage. How might we go ahead and collect that data? and come up with a uh, customized, data-informed approach towards deciding where your highest opportunity for investment may be. So what I found is, uh, how do you do that within a culture um, that is top-down, hierarchical, right? Mm -hmm. When design thinking is so very much a bottom-up, collaborative empowerment approach, when you're taking the, the ideation of those um, in your entire organization, you're taking direction from your client base. You're thinking about, you know, who you want to become based off of cues uh, in terms of the evolution of, of uh, the work that you're doing. And so uh, I started off by saying that it worked, but it didn't based off of my last experience at IUPUI. We ended up mm-hmm. applying this model and, and seeing an increase in enrollment after two down cycles. Um, however, the, there's a recognition that when you when you introduce something that's culturally different, you've got to make sure that you're you know pacing things and bringing people along. So I learned a lot of really important things working with a really a, an energized and fantastic uh, base at IUPUI of colleagues, mm-hmm. uh, leaders. Super grateful for that experience, but it was really recognizing that you can't you can't have strategy right in one bucket without acknowledging the organizational leadership reality in the other bucket. They're intertwined. How did you learn from that and adapt and realize in the moment, or did it take a little while to say, oh, okay, we're looking back. We need to, we need to adjust this. Or was it in the moment? Like you get out of a media and realize ah, that didn't hit the way I wanted it to. What a great question. It took, it took the last nine months. The last year will has been, I would say professionally transformational for me. I came out of my on-campus experience and uh, similar to the, you know, the inspired and hardworking, you know, persona that is my professional self. I was ready to launch Mara Bridge and, and turn it into a player, right? An immediate yeah. 
in the in the higher ed uh, realm. And what I realized was the rate of change that is happening in our society right now. The social fabric of our society is so fast. Just look mm-hmm. at AI and you've got Bard versus ChatGPT yeah. and every every platform has its own AI uh, extension and they're making mistakes before our eyes. Mm-hmm. I realized that I needed to, number one, I needed to take some time after the pandemic. So, you know, let's let me just be very clear about this. I think we all need to need to take some sort of self-care practice after the pandemic because we kind of moved on from it really quickly and yeah. didn't give ourselves time to regroup and think about, wow. How am I transformed after this experience? It was back to normal very, very, very quickly. So there's the personal aspect. How do you energize a tired and potentially beleaguered uh, workforce? But then on the strategy side, it was also an opportunity from this past year for me to explore industries that are ed adjacent or even industries that are not within education. So this last year was me reading articles regularly, Chronicle of mm-hmm. Hiring. Inside higher education, higher ed dive, Jeff Salingo, you know, like consultants, just niche, just I'm an information junkie. I like information. So it was following that. And then with my company making my early projects within industries that are adjacent or parallel to higher ed. So we did a contract with government, we had a contract with uh, a nonprofit organization, had a higher ed contract, but on the research and innovation side. And all of this, you know, has been this this journey of understanding how do we forecast, you know, what's most important in terms of process, what you said in the beginning of your intro, Mm -hmm. to true innovation, right? What does it look like to differentiate your brand, to differentiate your product in a way um, that shows fidelity to the students that you're trying to attract and the workforce that you're trying to energize? Mm -hmm. Those two areas there's something to be said about what, what we call thick data to complement big data and taking the narratives and keeping track of those narratives throughout the life cycle you know, of your enrollment journey, of your retention journey mm-hmm. is so critically important and valuable. We just have to give ourselves permissions to trust ourselves and what our eyes see and to trust what students are actually telling us, right? Instead of solely focusing on the predictive aspect of previous behaviors over the last three, five years, because those were very volatile years, right? So much has changed. We need to add more to to the overall analysis process. I think people need to hear your process. And really, this is this is one huge point and what's something that sets you apart here. You're not just consuming the data. You're not just consuming information. You're consuming and synthesizing. Yes. You do something with it. You take it and you say, well, what does this mean in relation to this other piece? How do we combine and layer? And that's what you're talking about with thick data, right? It's not just let's take more and more and more. It's how do you make something that you can pull pieces from all these to create something new to make sense of it? It's that insights piece. That's key. And that's forgotten too often. Yeah. Great, great observation. You know, and quantitative is king. You, you have to take mm-hmm. it, take into acknowledgement. And this is where recognizing culture is so important. Uh, again, one of the big the big lessons that I learned as I was going through my process of coming into realization of what it what it means to set your organization apart. You know, the culture of higher education, the ivory tower. You have faculty members with PhDs that lean into a more quant heavy approach towards justifying decision making. Okay? You ha- you absolutely have your mixed methods folks and your qualitative folks that are out there, but Culturally, my observation is, you know, within a context like that, you've got to be able to demonstrate a proficiency and an appreciation of the quantitative side of the house. It is very possible. I I said this to you in offline conversations, Will. You've got corporate entities like Whole Foods and, and, and Apple and others that use design thinking principles in order to imagine and to create demand that solve real problems that are being communicated by the consumer. Yes, higher education is absolutely part of the the, the public good imperative. There's no doubt about that. But we have to be honest with ourselves in terms of the business imperative of higher education. And so with 
adjacent options with the value proposition of higher education, which is returning, you know, and you've got data mm-hmm. that's coming out. But then you have what around a little over 5,000 institutions of higher education that are out there. Okay. Not all schools are in a position where they have that value proposition reimagined in a way that's going to compete with a public flagship or what I like to affectionately call your Saturday morning football program schools with that free branding. So how do we use data? How do we enact process? You know, how do we involve every piece of insight to find the pockets of opportunity in the same way that the iPhone was it ha- has evolved over time and the, the floor plan of Whole Foods is designed to ensure that you're solving the problems that 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 are being communicated by your base, right? And you're finding pockets of innovation that say this is what makes us uniquely us. What practices are you using to brainstorm, bring new ideas into your work? This I feel like that that's a big part of what we're talking about today in general, but what's your process there? Yeah, yeah, great question. The first thing and I've all, I've sequenced my process in terms of the work that we do across three phases. You know, analyze, right? So you've got to, you know, you've got to collect the data that you have on hand, and you've got to also take into account your existing analysis processes. Okay, mm-hmm. and all analysis is valuable and important. You just got to be able to line them up side by side and get the people that are analysts in the room to give their takes um, and have a, a a coalescing force that's able to bring all of that information together. So the existing, and then you've got the new. So what does the new mean? You got to collect your, you got to be able to collect new insights from your students, right? So do you have a system that's set up to where you're constantly communicating with students every step of the way from when they're at the pre-application stage all the way to graduation? Then you've got your workforce, right? And that's a big piece of our model that we have found incredible value in. You would be surprised that when you treat your employees as empowered ethnographers, I'm going to say that again, empowered ethnographers, okay, meaning they are researchers that can sit down and thoughtfully, you know, and sincerely share their their perceptions and perspectives of the students that you're looking to recruit. We all oftentimes think, well, yeah, that's great. Let's get our admissions counselors. What are you, what are you seeing? You're talking to students every day. Mm-hmm. But you also have your backstage operations folks that are observing the way that, you know, the the informatics aspect of the work. How is the human interacting with the machine? Right. How are they interacting with the application? How are they interacting with the systems? What's working? What's not? Where are the log jams? And all of that plays into um, the opportunity to take that 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 raw data translated through the existing qualitative methods that our faculty do, right? So that you have emergent themes. You further connect the dots with those emergent themes with the existing predictive models that you have and take some new data and help to to shepherd the leadership into making some decisions. The last thing I'll say, Will, you you cannot overlook prioritization. How are you prioritizing after you collect all this new ideation and then you code it down and then you've got these emergent themes and then you've got to make a decision on where dollars go. And this is where the Tim Brown change by design and also the uh, design thinking program uh, at uh, Indiana University Heron School of Art and Design. I want to you know, acknowledge uh, Dr. Yang Bakhan um, for a wonderful program where you're learning about the shaping factors when it comes to prioritizing. Uh, and I've mentioned this in, in, in previous podcasts in terms of different evaluation approaches. So all of that plays in that analysis part. I'm, I, I haven't even got to strat the other two, which are strategize and operationalize. The one thing that jumped into into my mind, if I'm sitting here looking, I'm I'm a director of admissions. I say, all right, I, I like this idea. What about the counselors? What about the staff who might say, oh, I don't, I'm not big on data. I don't, I don't understand data. How can I be an ethnographer if I don't know data, if I don't feel comfortable with it? Absolutely. Great question. There are certain concepts in higher ed, I'll just say this, that I would I would consider ceremonial, right? Data informed, right? Innovation, even diversity. These are things that we have had the luxury is what I would say of um, having actions in these arenas occur, movement, but in terms of the quality of the experience, right? Mm-hmm. 
you have you had an abundance of of bodies that were coming in, right? We were in a growth trend, growth, 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 and then you saw the subprime loan situation in in the in two thousand eight, two thousand and nine. People stopped having babies. We know the rest of the story. Now we're at a place where you've got to be more prescriptive, okay? Where you've got to be more curated. I am not going to pretend and act like an entry level admissions counselor should be charged with being an analyst, but they absolutely should be included in providing their perspective and being a source of data for the individuals at the top or the analysts that you bring into the room for deciding what priorities are. And this is mm-hmm. where Marbridge Consulting Solutions, we support the leadership in being able to come to those tough decisions, to be able to go out into your stakeholder community and present and say, this is something that represents the entire university. This is something that represents our client base. This is something that represents what it is, who we are and who we desire to become within an ever-changing market. And there, there has to be a willingness to make, number one, make, make commitments in a particular direction. But here's the biggest, here's a really important piece, which we don't oftentimes do as well in higher ed. Be willing to treat those decisions as a prototype, meaning mm-hmm. we're going to adjust it as we go, right? And that is not a sign of failure, right? I repeat, that is not a sign of failure. That is a sign of re- embracing the reality that the only thing constant in this world will patch only thing constant in this world is change. So you're aligning with a a universal truth in your planning, right? In your decision-making practice, right? And that's where we come in and we bring a a framework and a process that takes you from analysis and then strategy commitment and development. And then finally, the operationalized piece. How are you implementing it? How are you establishing a new culture that says we're going to be coming together on a weekly or a biweekly basis, and we're going to be looking at data that's coming from all of our vendor partners or some of the free sources, right? And we're going to also continue to listen to our students that are in the pipeline, and we're going to continue to poll our staff, and we're going to take this data and we're going to ask ourselves, what adjustments do we need to make to refine our product to meet who students are today? Higher education is the seat of shaping the very social fabric of this entire nation. That is a significant, significant responsibility. Either you are an institution that is trying to predict what students' agendas are coming in and saying, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna feed this to you because we think you like this. Or you are going to create something that's going to resolve an area of need, a pain point for students. What do we know from the niche data? We know that students are still dealing with mental health challenges. Mm-hmm. We know that artificial intelligence is out there and how, how it's integrated into the education experience is something of curiosity and interest. We know that we've got a microwave culture with this new incoming class where they want it, they want it fast and they want it right now, yeah. right? We know that there is a desire in, in, in to understand how to better use social media, to not only be a source of anxiety and fear of missing out and FOMO, but actually using it to, to be an entrepreneur and to be a creator of content and to make money and to promote your, your business and promote your brand so that you can fulfill the promise of higher education, of economic, social mobility. But then the third piece is personal development, personal development. Before we dive right into the other questions here, I want, <laughs> I want to uh, speak directly to, to all the listeners out there. I want you to kind of clock your body. Cause I, I find every time I talk to Errol, I'm, I find myself leaning towards leaning forward, leaning into the conversation. I just really want to hear from people to see if, if everyone else is out there listening to this right now. And yeah. Yeah. They're just leaning forward, leaning forward. Is there soon? <laughs> well, well, I, I'm not trying to flatter you, my friend, but I lean forward when you talk too. Like I, <laughs> I, when I tell the people, when I was at NACAC last year, I spent seven hours in the vendor hall talking to vendors. That was what my NACAC experience was. And I can't, you were the first person I came to and I said, I want to be on your podcast, right? Because and it took us too long to make it happen, but <laughs> no, it's just right. The timing is just right. 
you know, I'll say when I that last year at IUPUI, you know, when I had to make the tough decision behind, you know, when when say, well, we've got to turn the enrollment around. And I, it was like, OK, do we do what we've always done mm-hmm. or do I enroll in this grad program, learn this new model and apply a process that has never really been widely used, you know, to approach planning? Your podcast, your, your data work, it, we were sending that out every month. We were having convenings of faculty and staff on that campus talking about this data, you know, at, you know, saying, what do you see? Like, what do you, what does this mean in terms of your seat from whatever part of the ecosystem, the enrollment management ecosystem on this campus? What does this tell you about what we need to do and the problems we need to solve? And they, they were rich rich conversations will so for those for for you and for those who do the work in terms of harvesting data i just want to as a somebody that respects and and values uh, its role in helping to establish a north star i just want to say thank you thank you i I really appreciate no one out there could see me blushing so that's a good thing Uh, (laughs) i did just give it away though so what are some places that people can start they're really passionate about this they're excited they want to be more intentional about bringing data, both the qualitative and quantitative. How do they bring that into their work and get started? Because everyone has all this data, their CRM, SIS, they have the anecdotes, they have, hopefully they're keeping logs on all their visits and events and things like that. How do you actually then bring it into the work and not just say, well, we have it, we've collected it. Again, across those three phases, analyze, strategize, and operationalize. You got to figure out where you fall in terms of your organization. That's a timeline, right? Mm-hmm. Um, let's let's be clear. Now, I think the most thorough approach would be starting at the beginning with your data. But sometimes, you know, you have to. There's politics. There's you know commitments. You have to, and that's perfectly fine. You may be mm-hmm. at the stage where the data has been collected. The the you know the vendor has been the check is the the, the ink on the check is dry, right? Electrons are dry now. (laughs) Yep. And now you've got your strategies. And so you just need to refine the strategies. Okay. So you've got a, you've got a starting point so you can build upon that. Or maybe you're at the execution stage and it's like, okay, I I had one client where they just, they just rolled out a salary restructuring program at the university and the morale was really low, you know, for Mm -hmm. the institution. So they already had their plans in place. They knew what they were doing, but the implementation pathway was unclear. How do you energize your workforce, you know, and how do you align and coordinate efforts, you know, in a way that still places in you know, your workforce as empowered designers? And how do you motivate them to even participate in that in a context like that? I would uh, be remiss if I tried to answer that in a cookie cutter way, because that would be that would be that would violate the very principle of, mm-hmm. of the core of the work that we do because we're not we're not the problem solvers. It's you know I, I always say that good leadership isn't about having the right answers; it's about having the best questions. So mm-hmm. what we do when we come in is we ask a lot of questions. We hold space to facilitate self discovery. We hold space to you know to ignite self empowerment. We hold space you know to funnel information up to the top to allow leaders to feel more confident that what they're investing in and how they're investing in it, right? And when and where and all of those important questions are informed by the the most powerful source of data that that, that is available, which is in this context, which is qualitative. Well, if I may, I want to say this, okay? I, I love listening to business futurists I, I'm not going to claim that I'm a business futurist, but I do resonate with the way that they think. Let's put it like that. We'll say higher ed futurist. Is that better? Higher we'll ed put you on yeah, there we go. <laughs> <laughs> But you know, when you're designing, you there has to be a bit of futurist. You, yeah. We've talked about the quote from Henry Ford about, you know, if if I would have asked my clients what, you know, what they needed to make my product better, they would have said faster horses. Instead, he created horsepower mm-hmm. in, the, in the car. Still resolving the problem of his client base, but it's not just simply reacting to what they're saying. The difference between an administrator and a leader. I'll say that again. The difference between an administrator and a leader. An administrator is super essential in certain contexts. You get the information from the top and you administer it to your organization. 
there's no getting around that in the operationalized phase of what we do. You have to have that. But when you talk about leadership, it's saying you are a creator. And what is the era that we're in in terms of social media? What are all of the kids that we're recruiting to higher education talking about? I am an influencer. I'm a creator. That's the terms they're using. We're creating content. We're creating content. We're creating content. That is the culture. You know, news that's coming, you know, first person that's out there. So how do we bring that culture into your organization? Right. So that when your students show up and they're engaging your workforce, they can relate to them culturally. We're, we want to be creators and everybody in here is talking and thinking and moving as a creator. That takes time. That takes repetition. Right. And as you move forward with A.I., What's going to differentiate artificial intelligence from human beings? The way that I think about it, artificial intelligence is going to cover the administrator tasks that we have traditionally placed within the industrial revolution context, right? The, the, what I consider the assembly lines, right? Whether it's assembly lines at a plant or the assembly lines in higher education. So what's going to differentiate the human being? It's the creativity to design. It is the ability to see the negative space. I'm not looking at Will Patch. I'm looking at, and I know the listeners can't see what I'm seeing yeah. you, but I'm looking at the clock over your right shoulder. And, mm-hmm. I'm, and I'm saying, you know what? Time matters to, to Will. I'm looking at the books behind you and I'm going to say, you know, uh, he, he, he doesn't want Kindle. He may want to have you know, tangible things in his hand. Right. Is it 100 percent accurate? No, it's not. Which is what the case is for big data only, because you've got a ton of ton of subjects. It's consistent. You can say with a certain level of, of, of certainty in terms of black and white. Let's keep that. But let's combine the fact that I just looked at that clock and I just looked at that 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 bookshelf and I can say, you know what? We're not going to try to breed these horses to be faster. Let's go ahead and put it into a container that's going to solve the problem. The fact that you're not getting to the destination you need fast enough. We're mm-hmm. going to create horsepower. Higher ed is due for a reimagination such as that. Marbury's Consulting Solutions will be at the forefront of that movement. A couple things came in there. When you're talking about all this data, we have all this data. We're collecting all this data, the qualitative, the quantitative. I wonder, is it a case where we're getting where we have all this data that can answer these questions, right? Mm-hmm. We just lack the questions for all those answers. It's it's a flip here. Whereas before, if you don't have the data, you've got all these questions and you need a way to answer it. Now mm-hmm. we have a glut of data. We have a glut of information. We need the questions though. We need staff who can ask those insightful questions of, you know, does it still make sense to go to these areas? We have all this data. Let's look at that. Does it still make sense to do the event this way? Yes, it's been great. Could it be better? Yeah, that's a great question. The way I would answer that is going back again to my experience, the brand new experience that I went through at IUPUI of implementing this in. And one of my uh, former value colleagues used to go around and ask the question, like, what's the problem you're trying to solve? Mm -hmm. Now, that seemingly simple question can be an incredible pain point. If your day-to-day responsibility is rooted in administering the tasks that are brought down to you, right? It's not, it's not, it's not necessarily fair to expect the right answers to the questions if not contextualized in the right way. Because as you mentioned before, when you talk about organizational leadership in, in higher education, traditionally speaking, it's your top level administrators that are looking at data, right? Mm-hmm. It's not your entry level admissions counselor for most, you know, operations. It's not your academic advisor, like, yeah. you know, making adjustments. And so when you think about asking the question, what is the problem you're trying to solve? What we recommend and what we do is with NBC Solutions is we bring in an analyst to help design and create the correct questions that will allow and direct harvesting of information and the inquiries that happen with your workforce in the direction that it needs to happen. All right. And, and so it's, it's just simply like, how do we collect that information? How do we get the experts um, that do this to, to be able to, you know, to bring 
a, a certain level of consolidation and fidelity you know, to the types of questions that we need to ask. It is customized to every context in every culture. I cannot stress that enough. That's why you have to ask good questions, even on the front end, before you go out and ask more questions. You don't want to ask so many questions that you're getting going down the, the rabbit hole, right? Mm-hmm. Where you're getting lost. Because there will inevitably be people that are like, okay, that, that's enough. That's enough data. We need to act. I always cite Colin Powell, the 80-20 rule. Excuse me, it's the 80-40 rule. I want to make sure I get that correct. Um, and forgive me if I, if I got the numbers off. But I have the concept down, I, I promise yeah. you. The concept is... Once you get 40% of the data that you need, you're able to make a decision. And if you wait for to get 80% of the data you need, you, you likely have missed the boat, right? Like your competitors have already moved. So you've got to find a sweet spot to be able to say, this is enough data and we can act and move with confidence in this. And that is such a gray zone. The value of having a consulting firm like Marbridge Consulting Solutions to come in with the team you know, with experts, all of you all are represented in every aspect in these particular ways, right? We may not do everything you said, but you can see where you were placed in the analysis process. You'd be surprised what that does from an organizational leadership standpoint in terms of energizing your base, because now instead of them being victims of the decision makers from the top, they're now participants in defining and designing the future of how they're going to thrive and excel in their jobs and serving the students that they're in their, in, in this work meant to meant to do and serve. Want to touch a little bit more there? There's an idea when we come to content creation. There's two sides here. There's there's one that I'm a big fan of where you look for what is the problem and how do we solve it before people know to ask the question. And there's the concept of okay, we'll do all the SEO analysis. We'll see what people are searching for, what terms are they using, and we'll build to what they are asking. And I think there's a little bit of merit in both because if people are naturally asking these questions, we need to be able to answer them, right? But on this other hand, if you can provide something different that solves the problem and not just slaps a Band-Aid on it, how do you kind of merge these two ideas? What's your take there? You're, you're, you go back to the, you're talking about the mixed methods piece, right? And, and this is where, Will, I stand on a pillar of respect of the fact that, you know, higher education as an industry, right? Prior to World War II, it was, the focus was around knowledge creation. That's the ivory tower, right? After World War II, it, it, it got into the business of training the American workforce, right? With the GI Bill, Okay. And you're now having this proliferation of bodies that are being funneled in until, you know, the 1980s when Don Hosser then said, you know, we got we got to put some strategy around this. And mm-hmm. he said, let's let's create strategic enrollment management. And, you know, schools gradually you know, moved in that direction. Even today, not all schools have strategic enrollment management like Harvard, um, as I understand, doesn't have an enrollment management you know, division. But I bring that history up to say you have to recognize that the quantitative data aspect of higher education is a part of its very fabric. You have to understand and recognize its value. And it's also a part of you know, industry. So how do you go ahead and take the very best you know, predictive modeling, you know, whether you're looking at regression analysis or whatever, whatever your process is, and then saying, all right, as a mixed methods analyst, you know, we're going to take these narratives, right? And we're going to chuck it down from a, you know, from a, a big audio, you know, uh, collection into something that we can tag, right? Tags that we can actually see in the quantitative side. And literally you, you begin connecting those dots. How do you create confidence then, right? That this is, you know, this is something to be beholden as true, especially when the culture may not support the, you know, leaning in on something as quote unquote gray as qualitative data. I think that there is value in actually walking through the ethnography process yourself. And I'm not saying that that's something that I would hold clients to, but what I mean by that is I remember in uh, the grad program I was in, we had a project, Will, 
where we had to, as ethnographers, observe somebody or something in a particular environment and just jot down notes with great detail. And I was just like, man, you know, like, what, what is this? Like, what are we doing? Like, I wasn't a believer. So I took my three-year-old daughter, she was two at the time, to the library, watched her walk around. And I noticed things like, you know, the level of the, you know, the, the children's books that were to her eyes, the colorful rug that had the numbers that she was rolling around on. The, the wall that had the, the, the pictures. And by the end of it, I, I had written down a full page of observations and I recognized back to your original question, what's the problem we're try, trying to solve? And then what are some solutions to the problem? The thing about the administrator mindset is that we oftentimes start with how do we solve this problem, right? We're fixers, as opposed to having the discipline to delay that and ask ourselves, what's the actual problem that we are trying to solve? For my daughter, the problem that we needed to solve was how do you get the right information at eye level you know, for her? Because she's not looking down, she's not looking up, she's looking around and she's seeing particular things. So I, I could pinpoint the three or four aspects that are gravitating to her attention. Similar to content creation and looking at SEO, if you just looked at what they're typing in, you might say, well, we need to go ahead and provide more of those four things. Mm-hmm. But you don't recognize that my daughter did not see the other elements of the library because she's two and she's looking at eye level. Right. That is what differentiates the human being from it, from a machine, from artificial intelligence. It's being able to look at the negative space. And you have to ask yourself As we go forward into this future, are you a university? Are you an institution that desires to train itself and its workforce to look into the negative space in order to truly create differentiation, alignment and coordination in the direction of success? And I think Mm -hmm. every university desires that. It's about what are you willing to do in order to move down that road? Because change, change takes full and cohesive by it. My friend, our product is a four-year experience. Okay, let's 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 qualify this, okay? It's a four-year experience at a critically impactful moment in the human lifespan. That is your first when you're talking about traditional age students, right? We can talk about transfer, we can talk about adults. Let's just talk about traditional age. For the first time for many of these students, especially the ones that are coming on campus, they are parting away from the authority figures that have defined their entire worldview. Highest on that list are your parents, whether they're great parents or not. And you've got like pastor, coach, right, uh, siblings. You're now going out into an environment that's saying we are going to give you the latitude and the space to confirm and deny those truths and walk you through what the great Baxter Magolda, the the student affairs development theorist, called self-authorship, right? You know, that journey of saying, you know, this is who I am for me, by me. And by going through that process, you will be positioned to have the highest ceiling possible of economic and social mobility. That's what we sell. So if the product is not properly designed based off of the students that you are targeting, who are you trying to recruit to your institution? Are you really solving the right problems of the existing student base that's here? Or are you just trying to fit them into the box that you need them to be in? And when they're in a box, especially in this space of freedom, then the university ends up becoming no different than the the parent that they're supposed to be parting from and going on this self-office journey around. How does the student come to your university and they say, I see myself in this university experience? Just read this article about generational differences and how the Pew Research Institute is moving away from generational titles because they said it's so broad to be able to capture commonalities within generations when you have things like, you know, the 2009 recession, if you were in elementary school versus when you were in high school, 
You know, th- those are different time periods. And what they're doing, Will, is they're actually they're actually putting people into age groups, right? Shorter time frames that are that are at particularly coming of age moments developmentally mm-hmm. that say, okay, 9-11 happened when you were in high school or Obama was in presidency when you were just coming of age in your political awareness. There are certain aspects that matter to you. At Marbridge Consulting Solutions, we believe that the ability to take data like that and groupings of who you want to recruit beyond just simply where they're coming from or their race or their ethnicity in this environment now where whether you agree with it or not, we are in this post-racial moving context with the Supreme Court case, with you know what's happening in Florida and Texas. So how do you design diversity and equity and inclusion in a way that is it still honors those students, but it's, you know, but it's taking elements that go beyond race. Right. How do you still honor the legacy of race, but move into a direction that is realistic for the the movement of of our country and honor the student experience? And so I I bring all generational differences. I bring race up in this uh, scenario. I bring socioeconomic status up because you also have to know who you're recruiting. If a school just is like, we just got to get as many heads in as possible, as many heads in as possible. And you're bringing in first gen, you know, students from low socioeconomic backgrounds. Right. And you're not designing the college experience to match in a nuanced way the things that matter and inform their worldview. You're going to be adding to that fi- that 4.2 million figure that Jeff Salingo mm-hmm constantly is updating us around in terms of the number of students who have some college but no degree, right? And then you're going to be on the fast track to closing. So how might we, okay, how might we really get prescriptive and surgical and thoughtful and thinking about who are we recruiting, you know, and and, and place them into categories that allow for stronger and clearer themes in terms of the areas of opportunity to design and redesign your work. This is why I, the last year of my reflection, I'm not just an admissions guy anymore. I'm keynoting a uh, convening in Kentucky at the mm-hmm. end of September, where I'm going to be speaking to all of the summer bridge staff and, and students that are come across the entire state of Kentucky because the bridge experience is huge. Like if you're a university and you are not upgrading your bridge experience to include every student and figuring out how to make that happen, you know, I think there's a real mm-hmm. opportunity there. How do you design a bridge experience? How do you design a first year experience? How do you think about every high impact moment of the college journey that needs a more thoughtful and prescriptive and subjective um, design to have truly differentiating value points. Oh, I I don't want to go down too much of a rabbit hole again, but you said post-racial, but I it feels like we've had such a setback. It doesn't feel very post to me, I guess. What's sort of your feeling there with where we're at, where we're going? It it feels like we have taken a step back. Yeah. Great question. Man, they're all great questions. <laughs> A little bit about my background to answer this, uh, about 15 years in enrollment management. You know, I started at the University of Michigan Ann Arbor, um, actually in career development. Then I came to the University of Louisville and I worked for a race, a diversity scholarship, a race based scholarship. And then I came to IUPUI where um, where they didn't have one. I am a product of a um, of diversity scholarship as well. And a, a huge part of the trajectory of my career will was. Um, because I appreciated, uh, as a as a man of history, um, I was a Pan African Studies undergraduate major. It was just this makes a lot of sense to me. I think over the the, the 2010s, I began to observe a sort of disintegration of the cultural fabric that was around that those particular practices over time. That's why I went to Michigan. Full disclosure was the year prior at the Supreme Court stairs uh, on a bus trip as a senior in, in college protesting, you know, the uh, dismantling of affirmative action. And I wanted to go to Michigan because that faculty was, they were a part of those cases. They were very hands on with it. And I give that entire context to now bring it up to present day to say that 
the construct of race in this country, I think, is at a place where the powers that be at the top are saying, in a lot of ways, it's no longer functional. And I think that that brings us into two particular groups and directionalities, right? Um, so one, you're either, you know, colorblind, right? Let's go the colorblind route, post-racial, no race. We're not going to talk about it. You know, it's, it's the human race, right? The other direction, which is the direction that I, I'm more inclined to, to move in, is saying, you know, the construct of race, you know, as we knew it, has ran, ran its course. But now there lies an opportunity in the spirit of true design to redesign and redefine what race is in a manner that empowers people that come from marginalized or that come from the majority, right? What does race look like in now this new economy that we're moving into? Leaving the industrial revolution, we're now in the attention economy, you know, and then it'll be merged into the AI economy. It only makes sense to me uh, that we give ourselves an opportunity to have a seat at the table to participate in the design of that. And that is a big piece of the work that we want to do at, at Marbridge Consulting Solutions, using this framework of design thinking, using the principles you know, of empowered collaborative leadership, using the importance of thinking about you know, like groupings that place cultural experiences, common cultural experiences to help inform how we think about marketing and supporting and creating an experience. From the student that was protesting at the Supreme Court in 2007 and going to Michigan and learning from faculty members that submitting briefs and amicus curates, I hope that I said that correctly, to leading a race-based scholarship all through the 2010s. Mm -hmm. I'm, one of, I'm at a place myself now where I, I say, Everything is subject to change and, and I can either fight for affirmative action or I can fight for the construct of race as it was, mm -hmm. or I can open my arms and say, let's design something new. But let's make one thing clear. To get to colorblind, that's a long way off. And that is not, from my, my seat, the next logical step you know, for an experience that is going to truly be inclusive. And, uh, and, and help as many students as possible across the variety of social identity groups that are out there. Oh, it feels too utopian. It feels inclusive rather than equitable when we, when we yep. get down to it. Utopian, ceremonial. Hmm. I, I remember, I'm a, I'm a TikTok fan, man, and I, I listen to different thought leaders. And there was one quote that said that the reality in terms of power is that you know, if most people are in proximity of power, they're going to end up choosing themselves, regardless of race, mm. regardless of socioeconomic status, any of that. They're going to choose yourself and you're going to protect what you have. It puts a lot in the question in terms of the function of racism or sexism and all of that, not to dismiss those things, right? Because mm -hmm. the country, when you talk about a social construct, that means that it was created by human minds, it was created for a reason. I don't want to go through the history of the creation of race. That can be for another another episode, but I certainly can go there because it's a fascinating story. But just like just as it was created during Bacon's Rebellion, which you can look up for the listeners, it can be recreated, you know, over time, and it has been. We're just at a point where the pandemic happened, right? I know we we had to get back to normal and. It's like a blip in the radar that we were all locked down, <laughs> like taking sometimes pleasurable, sometimes insufferable walks around the same neighborhood in repetition. And then we had to move on. But the reality is you look at, again, historically, any time in the history that we've had a, a national or even a global event, the structures and the systems in our organization, are, are in, our, in our society are, are interrupted. And that's where we're at. Like we're, mm -hmm. And that's why I took the last year to just take a step back and just observe, understand, you know, kind of shut my mouth a little bit. You know, God gave me two ears and, and one mouth. Yes, I am saying a lot. Anybody that knows me, <laughs> that I like to talk. I assure you, um, listening is a part of, 
you know, the very core of how we approach our work in Marbury's Consulting Solutions. And it is how I have come to learn, especially in this last year, that we are going to recreate things like race. We are going to recreate things like the, the value proposition of higher education. We are going to recreate the organizational leadership structure of the higher education institution. And we're going to do it together. Well, that was a that was a bit of a heavy side. Whenever I whenever I hear that, I wonder are, are we really post a lot of things? It's ongoing. We can't plant a flag and say mission accomplished. Everything needs to keep growing, changing, adapting. You know the concept of finality again with the universal principle of change is is a farce. In this interview, ourselves we're sitting here and we're changing as we go. I'm getting older and you're getting older. <laughs> as we talk, See, right? I have that effect. I talk and people just start aging. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. Bill. <laughs> but, Look, I, I'll say, man, I, um, I am so grateful to my former supervisors, like former colleagues, former instructors, my Michigan days, Louisville days, IEPUI days. It's, it's been a real growth journey of understanding, like, what is it that we're doing in this industry? Like, what is our, on a macro level, what is this all about? And I think that's, I'm not going to pretend to answer that question in this context, but I think you've got, we're going to continue to move forward. And, and those who have leaned into the, the mostly exclusive back to normal they're starting to see that 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 back to normal is just it's just no more. So you've got to be able to find a partner that is going to say, look, we, we're going to look at the past like we Don Hostler, right, and his team. They did some amazing things. I read the entire manual um, when I was in college. It was huge for me. How do we show that deference and that respect while at the same time saying we've got to keep pace with the creation standard deviation, right, that exists with our new competition that is artificial intelligence. And in order to do that, we need to create a future of human designers because that you can put me on on record for saying this. And I pray that <laughs> and I say this with all joke. Now, what is it? Uh, Skynet and the Terminator, like they yeah. don't get to this level of advancement where they they are able to see the negative space and they are able to and you know interpret you know between the lines in a way that we were we as human beings were endowed by if you believe in a higher power that higher power how do we bring that out right and then how do we train the next generation through our example as parts of this industry as faculty as staff to be designers of their own lives designers of the solutions for the companies that they're attached with, designers of a, of a world that's going to complement AI instead of battle against it, that is going to complement the spectrum of human diversity instead of silo and create divisions around it. As long as students are looking at after their senior year and they're all looking at the next logical step in the American dream pathway is going to college, Higher education has one of the highest, most malleable moments in the human development experience in terms of re-socialization that occurs once they part from that family and they come to your campus. And I truly believe that. You're a higher ed futurist here. So let me talk about, we've looked at where we're going. If we want to build predictive models, I think a lot of people, that's, that's been one of the buzzwords over the last 10 years or so is everyone wants predictive models. They only work with consistent and accurate data, right? Correct. So we've lost all that in recent years. <laughs> it's one of those you talk about getting back to normal. Well, you can't get back to normal when normal moves. Do you think that modeling is still effective or do we need to look at a different way for planning and, and looking ahead? Oof. You're, you're, you're the data guy, Will. So <laughs> I, I, why don't you give but me... But you're the futurist like, here. <laughs> I feel like I should take the mic and I should re-ask that question to you. Uh, out of deference for your expertise, but I will attempt to give you my take. Uh, I think you're spot on. Uh, as a practitioner leading during the pandemic, okay, I remember that was as a data informed leader, 
that was a big question that I that we would be in the rooms asking ourselves. Like we're looking at year over year numbers, okay, comparing ourselves, you know, or we're looking at, you know, predictive modeling that is happening over three, four years, right? So when it's longer, like Richie data, that's different. You know, you're talking about birth rates, right? It's mm-hmm. also a lot more clear. When we're looking at year over year data or you're looking at the last three years and what you did in in, in, in March of, of this year is not is nothing like what you did in March of the previous year because that previous year you all of your events were virtual, right? Mm-hmm. You know, and then the, the year before that they were in person. And then, you know, the year before that you had not so it's like you're not looking at apples to apples. You have to you have to be able to supplement your your analysis process with something that makes sense. Right. And this is where I think we're moving into the era of mixed methods, you know, data data analysis. And this is I need to trademark design planning. I truly believe that that's the term that belongs to Mara Bridge Consulting Solutions because I believe in it so much. I worked so hard to create our framework and our model. Um, But having that qualitative data is going to allow you to not be beholden solely to the trends of conduct and behavior that emerge from these predictive models, but also not dismiss it. I, I, I am in no way saying that you should get rid of it. Like there is still, you know, there is still foundational value in it. You just have to be able to match it up with something that is a lot more real so that you can add context. Hmm. Context. That's the piece. Context that the human eye can be able to find the nooks and the crannies just like Henry Ford did when he created his world famous car. But we need to give ourselves permission to think beyond the container that we currently have. How? I guess I'll ask you this, my friend. I I will admit during the last year, I thought about, is it time for me to leave higher ed? Because when you think about transforming the container, you have regulatory bodies like accreditation, where Mm -hmm. if you want to come in and say, Hey, we want to design a college experience that teaches kids how to use social media, right? Effectively. But if an accreditation body says, uh, you know, you're going to lose your accreditation if you start to do too much of that. But that's the value proposition of the entering students of tomorrow. How do we reconcile that? You know, if you've got tradition, you know, like faculty, and I got to say, it's, you know, faculty, they're not wrong. You know, when when you say, look, we've been doing it for 200 plus years, right? We're still here. We will get back to normal. We will continue to do what it is that needs to be done. I think the difference between the longevity of before to present when it comes to that faculty take is in the past, higher ed was not responsible for training the future workforce. And it didn't shift to a codependent relationship in terms of its livelihood at the spurning of public investment when you think about public universities, right? And then for private universities, private donors, okay, that are still see the value of higher education. But you saw this this increase of bodies, right? And and that's how, that's what kept the lights off. Either you choose to divest in that what is it, 60-year investment point in terms of keeping the lights on for higher ed so that faculty can generate concept and knowledge? Or you say, we've got to figure out how we can do this better and keep up to date with our competitors and keep up to date with ourselves. You know, how do we navigate through those truths to recognize that if we want, want to keep higher ed alive at the same capacity that it currently is, who will survive? It will be the ones that reimagine itself and its value proposition. And and maybe some of that is getting more into teaching these other skills across curricula. So you're teaching the social media literacy, content development across other classes too. Absolutely. Maybe that gets around some of that with credit. You're not focusing on that. I like that. But it is spread I out like more. So you're getting bits and pieces here and there. You have your your content experts who are teaching the classes, but then you have these supplemental instructors who come in and partner with them on things. They have the experts on the content production. You have the experts on coding. You have the experts on these other things. And rather than saying, well, we're just going to teach a class on this that, okay, now we have to go through accreditation, everything else there. 
But instead, you have this team of instructors Smart. who collaborate, who teach across, all the way across. Maybe that's it. I don't know. And well, that's smart. You sound like a designer, man. I like the way you're thinking. I really. Yeah, I mean, like we it. we have to think about some of these things where you can accomplish something by not going head on. I, I've said the same thing when we're talking com flows. You know, people will say, "Oh, we need student stories." Well, okay, we're going to have this print piece and this email that are just student stories. But that's not what students say they they necessarily want. What is what's the value there? So instead. Okay, I want to talk about, we need to talk about financial aid. We need to talk about the program they're interested in. Well, yeah, here's the facts and figures. Here's the outcomes. Let's weave in. Let's merge in the student voice saying it. Let's merge in the student talking about, you know, I didn't think I could afford college. You know, my my parents were both factory workers. They had no experience. I'm a first-gen student. I was going to be paying most of my way. Here's how I made it work. Here's the steps I took alongside the facts, the figures, expectations, you're not hitting it head on. You're not just mm-hmm. saying them a postcard with, I meet little Stevie and Stevie did this. Yes. It's tied to something else. You can't just come at head on at every single thing. Yes. It's the same thing. I mean, you've seen this with your kid, I'm sure. I've seen this with my kid. It's been, you can't just hit everything head on. Sometimes you have to be a little sly and you have to say, oh, you know, boy, I wish... I was really hoping to get outside and, and uh, play ball today, but unfortunately I have to, I have to get some vacuuming done and all of a sudden, Hey, can I help vacuum? And Oh, that'd be awesome. And and you work together and you collaborate. But if I just said, Hey, would you go vacuum the reading room? Are they going to go up, pick up the books and vacuum? No way. Yes. No way. (laughs) Man, I, I, I'm, I'm enjoying listening to you talk. (laughs) You can't hit hit everything head on. And that is, that's the cultural revolution that leaders that think about a consulting firm like ours or other mm-hmm. design planning or design thinking entities are going to have to ask themselves is, are you willing to go up against the culture? Mm-hmm. Right. Like, because the culture is head on in higher ed. It's, you know, it's, you know, show me, show me what matters to you and I will give it to you. I'm not going to no, we're you know, for the most part. Right. And I really like the way that you're, you know, you're, you're thinking about how we transcend the challenges, right, that come with the reality of volatility in terms of consistent actions over the previous years and the volatility in terms of student behavior. If for no other reason, Will, mental health challenges, it's still number one, like on all health related articles that are out there. If, if you've ever gone through any kind of depressive low, you mm-hmm. know that your, your routines are interrupted, right? Mm-hmm. You're, not, you're not getting up and doing the same things that you would normally do. So we absolutely need to give ourselves permission not to hit everything head on, right? And to take a step back, right? And to, and to look at the entire context and provide depth, you know, to our analysis to then say, we feel, we feel like we can, we can begin in this direction. And we also give ourselves permission to make lefts and rights and go along mm-hmm. from there. So, yeah, I just want to keep going for hours here, but you, what- you, you, you told me this was only going to be 30. I'm just messing <laughs> <laughs> See, and I know myself well enough to say, you know, my goal is always that 30 to 40 minutes. I knew this wasn't going to be 30 to 40 minutes. Abbas, uh, <laughs> Abbas, Abbas. What, final thought here. What are a couple things that someone, regardless of what their level is in the organization, can do to just gut check and say, are we actually data driven or is this just aspirational? I would answer that question when you talk about data driven from the standpoint of looking beyond the what and giving yourself the chance to ask how. When you talk about ceremonial, what oftentimes is at the surface and is perfectly acceptable to stop at. You know, you've got a slide deck, it's got a bunch of numbers, you're looking at year over year, you get in front of your faculty council and your your executive leadership and you say, hey, this is this is what it is. 
And you walk out and you say, we're data driven, we're data driven, mm-hmm. right? But how are you making decisions around that? If you're an institution and where you're looking at, oh, we're, we're down 6%, we need to do something new. Is that mm-hmm. truly data driven? The how goes to how to the analysis of it. If I'm a vice president of enrollment management, okay, I am going to find a real patch and I'm going to make him one of the highest paid positions in my operation. And he's going to be my right hand person because you need to have the analysis, the analysts that, that are in place to give us the opportunity to evaluate is our house serving us. And you also have to recognize that there's different levels of analysts as well. I remember taking a LinkedIn learning course that talked about the, the various levels and degrees of analysts. And, you, and you've got to be able to piece together a team, you know, mm-hmm. uh, that, that's able to provide, you know, context. And if you can't do that, if you don't have the funds, you need to bring in a consulting team that's able to bring the right people together. And so I think that how is where we're at that how uh, is for anyone that's ever taken a you know a look at their operation and said, man, you know we're pretty cookie cutter. Like we're just like our our top competitors. Or wow, you know we're we're still doing we're still doing cafeteria visits, okay? And we can't convince you know our high school partners to to stop having us in the in the cafeteria and nobody's talking to us. Or our bridge program needs to get upscaled, but. We can't get faculty to come out and, you know, be engaged and be involved. There's something to be said about, you know, about really looking at life and fidelity to the narratives that are provided through the mouth of, of human beings. So centering the human experience at a strategy level, centering the human experience at an organizational leadership development level, Centering the human experience at an executive leadership level. Those three buckets in terms of informing your how, right, and getting the right players that are traversing across the three, the three entities is what is going to move an organization in the direction of having a culture of being truly data informed and data driven. And anything less, dare I say, will be rendered ceremonial and acceptable only as long as your class is being brought into the expectations of your leadership. That's a good ending point. Errol, thank you again. Fantastic. Really appreciate the time. Sorry we went over double, but... Uh... <laughs> It's, it's, it's all good, man. And look, I yeah, just yeah. want to thank you again for the, the platform. Yeah. Um, I also just want to, you know, to thank the colleagues in my industry. Like it's been a it's been a ride for anyone that's connected to enrollment mm-hmm. management. I mean, the pressure cooker uh, that everyone has been in. So I just want to specifically acknowledge my uh, my wonderful colleagues at IUPUI, my wonderful colleagues at University of Louisville, my wonderful colleagues at Michigan. Um, and every and everyone else across you know the whole ecosystem of, of higher ed uh, enrollment management. Keep doing good work. Trust yourself. Trust your voice. Trust your students' voice. Trust your team's voice. All right, and see how far that takes you. Okay. okay. Yeah. Thank you. Hey. All right. Be well. All right. You be well as well. Take care, everybody. Thanks for having me.